How many of you know somebody, maybe a friend or a loved one, whose life has been touched by dementia or Alzheimer's? A lot of hand goes up. A lot of hands. It, it's a vicious disease, an awful disease. There, there are many forms of dementia from the little bit I understand of it. Alzheimer's is just one. But it attacks the mind and it, it erodes connections. Connections between that person and memories and therefore connections between that person and somebody else, many other people. Sometimes connections between that person and, and what they've known all their lives and where they've lived, they become a stranger in their own surroundings. Imagine a woman married to her husband for 40 years, and they've shared life together, stories, dreams, sorrow, sickness, laughter, children, and, and they have this relationship with all these things that tie them together, all these bonds of belonging as we're talking about in Ephesians, this, this network of belonging between the two of them. And she starts suffering from dementia. And slowly over a period of weeks, months, years, for her, those bonds start pulling away. And she forgets those things that make them husband and wife. And he's looking at her saying, I I remember all these things. You belong to me. You're my wife. I love you. And she's looking at him saying, "I, I don't know you. What are you talking about? And it's a tragedy. And as far as I know, there's no medical cure for it. Maybe some things that can be done to to push the effects away a little bit longer. But do you think in that moment, if you could talk to that woman and you could talk to her husband and you could say, there's an option. There's a way out of this. There's, a, there's things you can do to fix this. Do you think they would jump at it? Absolutely. Today I want to talk about a form of dementia that we all face. It's a spiritual dementia. It's a spiritual eroding away of our connecting with God, our belonging with God, that we lose sight of and we forget from, from laziness sometimes from ignorance other times, and sometimes from just outright listening to lies and half-truths, as Mark's Sunday School class is talking about. We have this spiritual dementia. But spiritual dementia has a cure. It doesn't have to progress. We don't have to allow it to go on. And in the passage today, Paul is going to pray for the church in Ephesus. And he's going to pray something very particular. Because I believe Paul saw something going on in Ephesus, which was this spiritual forgetting that was creeping in. And it was starting to have an effect. And I believe much of the the book of Ephesians is written to stop that. And we get a glimpse ahead of what happened to the church in Ephesus. So open up to Ephesians chapter 1. We are in verses 15 through 23. If you were with us over the summer, we did a series on the prayers of Paul, and we looked at this as one of the prayers of Paul, obviously. Uh, So we're looking at it again. It hasn't been that long, but we're going to look at it through a slightly different lens. Through this lens of Ephesians that is presenting to us a new belonging, a belonging between us and God, this restored relationship through Jesus Christ, but also then Paul talks about how that also introduces a new belonging between each other. That in Christ, in the church, we have these relationships with each other that cross racial boundaries, that cross preferences, that cross backgrounds. Things that the world might look at us and say, how can you possibly get along with that person? 
And we can say, let me tell you about Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. And so Paul's writing to them to help them understand this belonging that they have in Christ that should work itself out in their church. And so he prays. Let me read the passage for us, and then we'll look through it together. Starting at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He starts his prayer by letting us know why he's praying. And it's three little words, for this reason. So what's he talking about? Because you have to, when you see a phrase like that, you have to go back and say, what is he referring to? Because he's bringing everything that he just said into this prayer. So we have to go back to verses 3 through 14, where Paul has gone on and on and on about the blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. God's choice to provide salvation. In verse 3, he says, God has blessed us in Christ with this plan of salvation. In verse 7, he says, he has saved us, redeemed us in Christ. In verse 10, God has a plan to bring everything in heaven and on earth together under Christ. And Paul's just spoken about or written about these huge things, these huge blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, this new belonging between us and God. And now, because of that, he's responding to what he just wrote and applying it to them and saying, I want to pray for you based on these things. Paul's prayer is a reaction and a reflection on who God is and what God has done. It's not just a knee-jerk reaction to situations in the culture. It's not a knee-jerk reaction to some problem. He's been thinking long and hard about God and the gospel and Jesus Christ and the plan of the church. And he says, because of that, I'm praying for you. So let's look at this prayer. A prayer, as I'm saying here, to overcome the tragedy of forgotten belonging. That spiritual dementia. And in verse 15, he says some things. He tells us some things about the Ephesians, some things he's heard. Listen to what he's heard. He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. So the first one, I've heard about your faith. He's saying, I've heard that you know about Christ. You've trusted in Christ. You've based your life and your foundation of your church on this faith and who Christ is and what he's done. And I've heard that. He says, not only that, but you've applied it to your relationships. You love one another and you love other people. Faith and love. These two things go together. And for Paul, they're crucial. Anybody that says you can love God without knowing him is an error because Paul so often in the first half of his letters, he goes on and on about things we need to know. 
But then anybody that says, well, I can know a lot of things about God but not be loving is also an error because the second half of many of Paul's letters, including Ephesians, is all about how that then causes us to love God and to love others. So for Paul, if he says, I've heard about your faith and your love, this is a big deal. He's heard some really good things about the church. I hope and I pray that as a church, if people hear about us, that those are two things they would say about Orchard. And I believe they are. That we have faith. We trust in God's word. We trust in the gospel. We go deep in our understanding of who God is and what he's done. And I hope they also hear that we love one another. We, we interact with each other and encourage one another. And like family together, we love one another. But also beyond just our gathering, we love our community. We love people with the love of the gospel. And so because Paul has heard these things, he prays. He says in verse 16, I've never stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. The first aspect of prayer there for Paul is giving thanks. He recognizes God is doing something amazing. And he's giving thanks to God for that. He's excited and he's grateful for what God is doing and he wants to see that continue. Now the question is, did it continue? What happened in Ephesus? We get to flip forward 10 years in the history of Ephesus. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Roughly about 10 years after Paul writes the letter of Ephesians, another letter is brought to the church in Ephesus. It's a letter from the risen Lord that he had John the Apostle write down and deliver. It was one of seven that was taken to several different churches. And we have it recorded for us in Revelation chapter 2. Now he starts off in verses 1 through 3 of Revelation 2 with a bunch of good things about the church, but then he gets to this in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. Now think of the Son of God, Lord of heaven and earth, saying to his people, the church, I have something against you. It's a big deal. And and hopefully they listen to this. But listen to what he says. "I, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Paul is writing to them 10 years prior and saying, I've heard about your faith and your love. 10 years later, Christ is writing to them and saying, You've forgotten something. You've lost something. Scholars debate whether this first love that he's talking about is a love for Christ or if it's a love for each other. I'm not sure it really matters. I think it's both. Because I think in the gospel, our love for God through Jesus Christ always drives our love for each other. So if we have a problem loving God, we're going to have a problem loving each other. And if we have a problem loving each other, we ultimately have a problem loving God. So this thing that Paul is writing to them about saying, I've heard this to be true about you 10 years later is evidently not true anymore. What happened? And this is where I thought of this idea of spiritual dementia. They've lost something. A connection, a memory, an understanding of who they are in Christ. Something has been lost. Flip back to Ephesians. Because as I thought about that, and then I thought about what Paul's writing in Ephesians, I actually think he was beginning to see this spiritual dementia at work. 
I think we see it when we get into chapter 2. We'll look at the relationships between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is writing to them, challenging them to maintain these relationships in Christ that the world says would never work. And he says they have to work in the church because this is the application of the gospel to your relationships. And I think he was beginning to see that something was threatening to pull that apart. I think it's why he goes on in in chapter 1 and chapter 2 to talk about the power of the gospel and who Christ is because they were starting to lose it. I think it's why at the end of the book he goes into their individual relationships. He says this then is how you are to treat one another because they were beginning to slip. And so this prayer is a prayer that we need to listen to to say how might this be going on in our own lives? What kind of spiritual dementia are we going through? Look at Romans chapter 1. Take a left from Ephesians. Romans 1 has a lot about the effects of sin in the world because I want us to see where this dementia comes from and I want you to see I'm not making this up. Romans chapter 1 verses 21 through 23 says this. It's talking about the world and and as sin has moved into the world and the choices that have been made. It says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Sin is a replacing of God with something else. It's our own preference, our own will, our own satisfaction, our own happiness. Scripture calls this idolatry. You're worshiping something that is not God. And Romans starts with tracing this idea of how sin came into the world. And it says that's where it starts. They replaced God with something else. And then there's this list of all of these effects. But look down at verse 28 of Romans 1. Here's one effect. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So God gave them over to a depraved mind. You see the dementia there? They've lost. This knowledge of that we had in creation of God has been lost. It's warped in this world. Our minds become corrupted by that. This ability to look at God and say, we know who you are. We know what you've done for us. We can rejoice in that. It's become corrupted. And sin comes in and it removes one thing after another of saying, this is how God loves you. This is who he is. And it gets stolen from us. And we replace it with other things. Oh, God's not just. God's not fair. Or as Satan came to Adam and Eve, God didn't really say that. You can't trust his word. And that sin coming in and eroding our understanding of who God is. Now here's the interesting thing. If you have a loved one that's struggling with dementia and they no longer recognize you or or their family or their friends or their home, do you just let them go? Do you just say, well, you know, that's how they see the world now, so who am I to say that that's wrong? I mean, if that's how they want to live and they don't know me anymore, so well, see you later. Would you do that? No way. You would say, I love you. You may not know who I am, but I will not let go. I will love you as best I can, however I can. I will love you. And yet, look at our spiritual dementia. We say it's loving. Well, if you don't understand God, well, that's okay for you. You can believe what you want to believe about God because I've got to let you just believe whatever you want to believe so that that makes you happy and that's okay. 
We wouldn't do it with a physical dementia. Why do we do it with a spiritual dementia? Especially when God has given us the totality of his word to say, I want you to know me. I want you to know who I am. And yet so often we live with this comfort of our own forgetfulness about God and we say, well, I'm just too busy. I've got other things going on. I believe that Paul could see where the church in Ephesus was heading. There were warning signs. And so this prayer and and the whole letter of Ephesians was part of his effort to correct that. The wife with dementia has no choice. There's really nothing she can do to overcome that or that anybody else could do. There is something we can do. And there is a lot that God has done to overcome our spiritual dementia. So let's look at the content of this prayer, starting in verse 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So to overcome this tragedy of forgotten belonging, the spiritual dimension, dementia, we need to know God better. Now, I know that that comes across like, oh, you need to know more about God, but it's more than that. Look at how God, or I'm sorry, look at how Paul addresses God. Because if we're going to know God, we have to have a big view of who God is. We have to understand the greatness of who God is. So Paul starts off, and look at who he prays to. He prays to God as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So right away, as he's addressing his prayer, if you will, he's praying to a big God, a triune God. He knows a lot about God. We talked about the Trinity last week. I'm not going to try to explain that again. But God brings all, or I'm sorry, Paul brings all of who God is into his prayer. And he's saying, that's the God I'm praying to. But he goes on, he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this culture, you would, as you were introducing yourself to somebody, and you were saying, you know, I'm John, you would give a little bit of reference point to help them understand who you were. I'm the father and so-and-so. I'm the worker with so-and-so. I lived from this place. I, You know, something to say, this is who I am. Now, if we go to the Old Testament and God introduces himself to people, he would often say, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. You see that over and over again. Is that kind of familiar? Why did he do that? Because any Israelite would have known those stories. They would have known how God dealt with Abraham, how God dealt with Isaac, how God dealt with Jacob. So not only is God letting them know, I'm that same God, but he's telling to them, remember what I did with Abraham? Do you remember what I did with Isaac? Do you remember what I did with Jacob? I'm still doing those things. I want you to look at the the thing that is so important about me. So now Paul's praying to God. And what's the credential he gives about God that he wants his readers to key in on? He is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who would send his son to die in our place. That's who Paul wants us to know better. The God who loved us so much that when we rebelled against him, he didn't just turn his back. He sent his son into this sinful, awful, messed up world. And he didn't just teach or beat us over the head with with good ideas. 
He went to the cross and took our sin and died in our place. That's the God that Paul is praying to. And what is it that he prays for? He prays that they would know him better. Know him better. Listen to Proverbs 14.12. Don't turn there. Just listen. It's very short. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Let me say that again. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. That verse terrifies me. And it should terrify all of us. Because what it means is that there is a concept of common sense or wisdom in our own minds, in our, in our world, that we think is the right way and it is completely, utterly, and totally wrong. It's not just a little wrong, it's really wrong and it leads to death. So that means we have to wonder, are our own ideas about God okay? And that concept right there in that verse which says we might actually be totally missing it should drive us to God's word. Say, God, you've given us everything we need to know about you. We need to open it up rather than coming up with who do you think God is? Who do you think God is? How does God work for you? How does he work for you? We need to say, wait a minute. Let's go to how God says he is. Let's look at what God has communicated. And Paul is saying to them, you need to know God. And you can't do this on your own. God has given us His Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation to come into our lives, to teach us, to bring Scripture to us so that we can know God better. Paul's prayer is that they know God. Paul could have prayed for God to fix everything. He could have prayed for God to remove the oppression of the Romans. He could have prayed that God would make them all feel better and keep them happy and healthy and wealthy. He could have prayed a lot of different things. But he said, I know the most important thing that you need. You need to know God. Now, knowledge has a couple different usages. In Scripture, and I would say in our culture today, there are some that say, well, I know God. I feel him with me. I feel his presence. And I just, I love him so much. And I'm very spiritual. And I really know God. Well, have you ever read scripture? Well, no, that's way over my head. But I know God. That's kind of like a, a guy and a girl on a date. And, and the, you know, the guy's talking about who he is and where he's come from. And, and the girl starts sharing about her family. And the guy says, no, sh- sh- just sh- don't ruin it. I just love you so much. Don't ruin it by telling me anything about you. Ladies, if that was you on that date, would there be a second date? No. But don't we do that with God all the time? Oh, I love God so much. Do you spend time reading his word? No, I don't understand it at all. I just can't do that. How do you know you really love God? How do you even know that the God that you say you love is the one true God or not just some figment of your imagination? So on the one side, we have people that say, I know God and it's touchy-feely and experiential. But then there's this other side. There's these people that they study and they read and they get all the theology and all the commentaries and all the end times charts and they love to get together and debate with other people. I know God because I can recite facts and figures and detailed Greek and Latin explanations about everything and I know God. Well, do you love that person you're talking to? No, because they're wrong. (laughs) Well, then do you really love God? If you truly knew God as much as you say you know God, wouldn't you love the people that God loves? These two things in Scripture are brought together. To know God is to know something about Him. 
it's not for nothing that Paul spends several chapters in each of his letters telling us things we need to know about God. Facts. Truths. Dare I even say the awful word of theology. Theology. All it means is knowledge of God. For a Christian to say, I don't like theology, that's like telling your wife, I love you, but I don't want to know anything about you. That makes no sense whatsoever. Now, theology is something to be argued about and debated over. I get that. That's annoying and frustrating. But theology of knowing the God who created you and sent his son to die for you, that we should fall in love with. We need to know who God is, but then we also need to have that close relationship with him. And that's what Paul is praying for the Ephesians. I want you to know God. Knowing God breaks through the spiritual dementia of this world and allows us to see things from God's perspective, God's truth of salvation. The rest of the prayer really hinges on two main points. To know the hope to which we're called and to know the power that's at work within us. To overcome the tragedy of forgotten belonging, we must know the hope we have in Christ. It's easy to live our day-to-day lives caught up in the things that are going on and lose sight that God has an eternal plan and a purpose. And Paul has been speaking about that purpose over and over again and will continue to speak about that purpose because he wants them to get outside of their own brain and understand that God is at work in a powerful way. Now, there's a difference between worldly and biblical hope. Worldly hope is a wish. I think, possibly, the, the weather's going to be nice today. It's, it's sort of a wish. It might be nice, might not be. I really don't know. I just hope. I, I hope maybe someday I could go to college. I hope maybe someday I meet the man or woman of my dreams. I hope maybe someday I, I, I get to retire. I don't know when. I just kind of hope. I hope it all works out. It's sort of a wish. Might happen, might not. Biblical hope is very different. It is something hoped for in the future that is based on an absolute certain truth of the past that guarantees that future thing is going to take place. Do you see the difference? Biblical hope is a guarantee. I hope that Jesus Christ is going to return. That's not a wish that maybe, possibly, he might return, might not, but I hope. It's a certain truth. I know it because Christ said it as the Son of God because he died on the cross and rose from the dead proclaiming he is who he says he is. And if he says he's coming back, I guarantee he's coming back. So I hope. I have a guarantee of that hope. Hebrews 6.18-20 through talks about the salvation we have in Christ. And it says, God did this, salvation through Christ, by Two unchangeable, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us might be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. The secure hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. So many Christians are living with this Maybe, possibly, God loves me. Maybe he doesn't. I hope when I get to heaven, it all works out. That's not what the Bible says. And Paul prays for them. You need to know the hope that is yours in Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of it. He wants them to know that hope. Let me help you to kind of self-diagnose, right? So, so if you think you're sick and you go online, you go to like WebMD or something, and you punch in a bunch of, uh, of symptoms, 
Don't ever do that because you'll find what you're dying of like in five different ways. It's awful. It's always the worst thing. But I want to give you sort of a, a diagnostic tool for your own life, okay? How do you know if you have this spiritual dementia? Are you focusing more on your fears and worries in your own life than on the promises of God accomplished through Jesus Christ? If you are spending more time focusing on your own fears and worries, whether it's personally or for our country or for our world or whatever it is, if that's where your focus is, you are allowing your sin and the sin of this world to erode that truth of God through Jesus Christ. And you're losing that hope, that secure hope that is available through Jesus Christ. There's another way that Paul gives us to overcome the tragedy of this forgotten belonging, the spiritual dementia. We need to know the power of God at work in us. It is easy to live in fear today. It's easy to turn on the television and look at craziness in the world of terrorism around the world, to look at the craziness of the political arguing and posturing that's going on, to look at the craziness of, of crime. And, and you don't even have to turn on the, the television or, or look on the Internet. You can probably look at your own life and your own families and see some of that. Hopefully not all of it, but some. We say, oh my goodness, it's so easy to be afraid. But Paul points to them and says, wait a minute, there's a power at work. And I almost imagine Paul at this point thinking, what's the greatest thing I can show them to help them understand the extent of this power? And he goes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he says that same power, let's think about the greatest thing that God could possibly do. He could send his son to die on the cross and he could raise him to new life. That power that did all of that is at work in you right now if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Amen. If that is true, no. Since that is true, what do we have to be afraid of? What do we have to worry about? It's the power that God has to love us that would put his sins, or our sins, I'm sorry, on his son. It's the power to forgive us that would pay the price for our sins. It's the power to conquer sin and death that rose Christ from the dead. It's the power to put all things under his son, Jesus Christ. And this power is at work constantly in each and every person who has trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's true about you right now. That power is at work in you. But spiritual dementia happens when we forget that that power is at work. We wonder, what's God doing? Maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he's not in control. Maybe my sin is just too big. Maybe the problem in my life is too great. And Paul's telling the Ephesians, and I hope we're hearing it, the problem is not too great because whatever it is, the power of God is greater. Another thing he prays about to help them overcome this tragedy of forgotten belonging, the spiritual dimension is that they need to know the greatness of Christ. In verses 21 through 22, he says all these big things about Jesus Christ. We're going to look at these next week on, uh, on Palm Sunday. Talk about just the greatness of Christ in the cross, but also throughout history. But today, for our purposes, I just want to say this. Christ is in authority over all things, past, present, and future. There's nothing in our culture. There's nothing in our country. There's no political strife or structure. There's no personal tragedy in your own life. There's no sin in your past, present, or future that is not under 
and can be conquered by the power of Jesus Christ. And we need to have that big view of Christ instead of forgetting and allowing sin to erode our confidence in Christ's authority over all of history. I think it is a great tragedy and a great evidence of this spiritual dementia among Christians that we are so often the ones complaining about things in this world. Why? We know Christ is in charge. We know He's in control. Let's talk about that. Because that's what the world needs to see. One last one. To overcome the tragedy of forgotten belonging, we must know the purpose of the church. Again, we'll speak more about that next week. But Paul says this in verse 22 and 23, And God placed all things under his feet, speaking of Christ, and appointed him head to be over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The Son of God, from eternity past to eternity future, has this great plan. And all of that plan, and all of the power of that plan, is at work, according to these verses, in the church. The church is not a building. It's not these walls. It's not these windows and lights and property. The church is you if you've been saved by Jesus Christ and me. We are the church. And the fullness, all that Christ is, is at work in and through us. That is a great thing to have confidence in. On Thursday, I had the opportunity to meet with a bunch of pastors from our area. We get together from time to time. I've spoken to you about this before. We're working on planting a church in the inner city of Rochester. That church, the first church, is going to launch on May 1st. May 1st, New City Fellowship of Beechwood is going to launch. Beechwood neighborhood, from what I've heard, heard, I'm an outsider here, but uh, Beechwood is evidently one of the worst neighborhoods in Rochester. One of the highest rates of crime, Uh, Just a horrible, horrible, awful place. And Chris, who you got to meet about a month ago, he came and preached. He's the church planter. Chris moved into that neighborhood about five or six years ago. He's been working in the neighborhood for nine years now, doing children's ministries and outreach ministries. And now they're transitioning to plant this church. And so I was in a meeting and Chris was sharing his vision because we had a pastor from another church that we're hoping is going to get involved and support this. And church said, I'm sorry, Chris said some things that just have stuck with us. He said, when the gospel comes into a neighborhood, through people's lives being changed by the gospel, it changes the neighborhood. And we put up a map on the wall, a Google map, and he got up and he started pointing to things. He said, there's about four or five families, Christian families, that have decided to support this church plant. And get this, he started pointing to, to this, there's about, I don't know, six or eight square blocks or so, And he says, this family moved there, this family moved there, and this family moved there. And he said, I live right here, the church is right here, the 441 Children's Outreach Ministry is right here. And he said, across the street from 441, this is the deli where all the druggies hang out and all the drug deals go down. And the cops know about it and do nothing. He said, this street over here is where all the shootings take place. And this street over here, there's been a lot of shootings too. And this one over here. And it's just a horrible neighborhood. And I'm looking at this map, picturing this crime-ridden area, but also the places that he pointed to of Christians moving in to bring the power of the gospel at work. And he said this, I believe that as the gospel spreads in this neighborhood and people's lives are changed, 
the crime will go down. He said, we want to see this neighborhood change for Jesus Christ. And then he said, and I love this because it was a bigger picture. He said, if you picture a map of Rochester, there's kind of a crescent of crime and Beechwood is one tip of the crescent. He said, my goal is to break the tip of that crescent through the power of the gospel. And then he said, we're going to go to the neighborhood next door and we're going to do it again. Then we're going to go to the next one and do it again. And we're a part of that as a church through our help with this church. And I want you to pray for May 1st when this new church launches. They've got a long, hard road ahead of them and you'll hear ways you can get involved. But I don't tell you that story to pat us on the back for how great we are, the things we're involved in. I tell it to uphold the power of the gospel, number one. But number two, if you say amen to any of that and you go, wow, it's so great that the power of the gospel can do that, that gospel is at work in you. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way is at work in each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. So if we're going to say we believe in the power of the gospel to break the crime in that area, to break the generations of sin that have been going on, if we believe that to be true, shouldn't we apply it to our own lives as well? The power of the gospel at work. God looks at us and he knows all the things, past, present, and future, that he has done. He knows his plan. He knows he sent his son. He has this connection to us and he's reached out with salvation. And sometimes we look at him and we say, because sin has clouded our vision and our own ideas have clouded us, we say, I don't know who you are. I want to do things my way. I, I want what I want and I don't, want to, I don't want to follow your way. I don't want to accept your love. I don't want to accept your truth. And we just cling to our own spiritual dementia. Five things to remember from this. To overcome this spiritual dimension, know God. Know the hope we have in Christ. Know the power of God at work in us. Know the greatness of Christ. And know the purpose of the church. Now, I don't expect anybody to remember all five, so let me give you one. If you remember nothing else from the sermon, remember one thing. Know Jesus Christ. Get to know him better. Because Everything that God is is found in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. You want to know hope? The hope that is there? Get to know Christ. You want to know God's power at work? Get to know Christ. You want to know Christ better and understand His greatness? Get to know Christ. When we know Christ, we will know the purpose of the church to make followers of Jesus Christ. We all struggle with the spiritual dementia. But you have a choice, and I have a choice, and we have a choice as a church. Are we just going to give into it and follow what makes sense in our own way that Proverbs says actually leads to death? Or are we going to say no? We will fight it, and we will dig in to God's word to know God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for myself and for each and every person here that we would know you. Not just facts and figures about you, not just feelings about you, but your truth through your word, applied through your spirit's work in our lives, the truth of the gospel of salvation that saves everyone who believes that Jesus Christ, your son, died on the cross in our place and rose from the grave, promising eternal life to all who believe. May we know that. And continue to go deeper because there's always more to know. And God, when we love somebody, we should want to know more and more. 
May that be true in our relationship with you as well. And God, I pray that as Christians we wouldn't give in to this spiritual dementia, this corrosive effect of sin in our lives, but that we would run to your word. We would huddle together in groups and pour over your word. We would talk about it, study it, pray through it together that we would know you better. Because God, we want to point others to you, not to our ideas of you, not to our own personal preferences, but to you. So I pray that we would know you better. In your glorious name we pray. Amen.